Hey, what's going on, guys? My guest today is someone who has turned their love of fishing into a career that they get to do and enjoy every single day. He's a great guy, an awesome fisherman. I highly recommend his guide service. And I had a great time sitting down and talking with him. I think you guys will really enjoy it. So please give it up for Alan Borges. So before we jump into this, do you want to introduce yourself and say what it is that you do? Because you have a job that, man, most people dream of doing. I do, actually. So my name's Alan Borges. I run Alan's Guide Service out of Eureka, California. And I've been doing it for, well, full-time since 2002. Wow. 18 years. Yep. Damn. I did it before that when I worked at the mill in Arcata at Britt Lumber. On okay. part time, I did it. Okay, so I've actually been doing it since uh, about 1990. Wow. Yeah. How did it form? How did you start with it? Well, um, when I turned about 20, yeah, when I turned 20, a buddy of mine up the street from my parents' house, when I still was living at home, showed me how to build fishing rods. And I just went nuts after that. I mean, I probably built, I did them for a couple shops, you know, repairs and custom rods for like six years. And I built rods for my buddies and stuff like that. So I probably built five to 600 rods and then repairs and stuff like that. So it got me into fishing. And then another friend of mine asked me if I wanted to help him out, you know, get a guide license and help him out with some trips. And so I started doing that, but before that, previously for like, as soon as, like right when I got married in 87, I started fishing with my wife's cousin, bought a drift boat. We fished every weekend, just him and I checking out all the rivers, getting dialed and just, that's how it got started there. And then when my buddy asked me to get the guide license, I just started doing weekend trips whenever. Yeah. Yeah. And then it just took off from there. Blew up. Yeah. That's awesome. Wow, I didn't know you started out by building fishing rods and stuff. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. When did it switch to, okay, this is something I could do as a business? Like this could actually be Well, something. it all started going down when the big blow up came with uh, Palco and all that stuff where, where the tree sitters and all that started going on. And it just increased our productivity at the mill to the point where it was just so stressful because it was hard to keep up and we couldn't get any more help. And it just was like, I got to get out of this. Mm -hmm. It was really like to the point where you couldn't take it anymore because it was just really super hard to, to uh, go to work every day and just be like from the start to the finish nonstop. There was no breaks. Mm -hmm. It was like, you were always behind. And so I just, wanted to do something else and if it wasn't for my wife having a great job and her saying go for it because you know as a guide it's hard to have health insurance yeah so she had all that stuff that i could go on to and uh basically i just had to build my clientele up to the point from weekends to all week full time yeah. yeah which took about 
I'd say total about five years to really get going. It mm-hmm. increased every year, uh, just mostly by word of mouth. I mean, it wasn't no advertisement. I didn't pay thousands of dollars to go, you know, have my name put on stuff and whatever. Or there was no Facebook. And stuff. Yeah. No Instagram. Yeah, you had to grow it without social media. Yeah. So um, luckily and thankfully and... I mean, I can't be any more blessed with the people that I have fishing with me and the friendships that you've, uh, that you gain over those years. I mean, true friendships, people that have been fishing with me since day one. And it's, it's pretty awesome. I mean, it's, I, I get up, I don't, there's no, oh God, I got to go to work today. It's like, okay, let's go fishing. Mentally, you get tired. Like mm-hmm. when I'm fishing the Klamath for like 60, 70 days in a row. You get tired mentally, but the fishing part of it, you don't get tired of that. Oh, I bet. Yeah, it's just the mental tiredness. And physically, I'd imagine you get a little fatigued too, because when you're rowing the drift boat, yeah, running the jet boat, you yeah, got that's your hand on the motor, and yeah. So during that season, when I'm running the j- drift boat, I try to take a day a week off, and sometimes Mother Nature takes it off for you, mm-hmm. just by blowouts and too much water or whatever. Are you working out in between, or like what are you doing for people who don't know with the drift boat? Do you kind of want to explain what that is for them? Oh, rowing the drift boat? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's a lot harder than it looks. Oh, it looks pretty hard. I mean, uh, if you just throw somebody in there and they've never rowed a boat before, Mm -hmm. they'll probably be in circles. And especially if they're in a river, it's probably not going to be good. Yeah. Uh, I highly suggest, and what I did was, is I just went to a calm piece of water. Mm -hmm. I went to Freshwater Lagoon, and I started figuring out what oar did what. You basically steer it like you would a forklift from the rear. And you can't push into a turn. Well, you can if you really know what you're doing, but it's not advised. Mm. You want to pull away from the things that you don't want to hit. And so you point your bow at those things. And so it's just learning over time. And then technical water, just with experience, you know, doing those things, it, it takes time. You don't just go down the river and, you know, it happens. Yeah. I mean, it, the best thing to do is to not fish until you are, you know, comfortable with your ability. Because when you're trying to fish, you're not concentrating on what you need to do or looking ahead at something that might be coming up on you. So Yeah, and that's when you end up on the side of the bank, which yeah, is or flipped over or something. Or that. Has that happened to you? No. Okay. Knock on Thank wood. Thank God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did have a buddy, and I'm not gonna mention names, that uh built his own drift boat out of wood and without consulting anybody went up and drifted it on an upper part of the Trinity River, which, in my opinion, was probably one of the top five not you didn't want to go to those spots as a beginner. And within 150 feet of putting it in, he sunk it. Oh, man. Yeah. So that's what I'm talking about. It can happen in a hurry. And it doesn't matter if you've rode one for a year or 25 years. If you're not paying attention... It can happen real quick. Yeah, I'd imagine it's almost like riding a motorcycle in a sense where you just have to be hyper aware of everything that's going on around you. Because if you take your eyes off the water or off what you're doing for a split second, that can be, that can make the difference. Yep. Yep. And you'll always have, and it's kind of good, but it's funny in in some ways. 
you'll be fishing along and we do a lot of what we call side drifting. And that's where you're casting off to the side and we're drifting through the run away from where we're trying to fish. And so you try to drift as far down into it as you can before you actually have to pull out and go around something. Mm-hmm. So you'll get to these spots like, I'll take the eel, for example, on the South Fork. There's a lot of spots with big, huge boulders. And you try to drift right up to them. Well, you, you know, you're paying attention, but you're also looking at the lines. But people don't think that you're looking at the object that's coming. So they're like, hey, Alan, you see that rock? I'm like, yeah, I see the rock. You know, but they're they're aware Getting of it a, too, answer. Yeah. a lot of times. Um, but yeah, you get into those situations. And if you're not comfortable with your ability to row, if you get too close, you may not be able to back out of there to get away from it. Mm-hmm. And for me, I mean, I'll touch on a different type of thing too, is I have buddies that are much taller and much stronger than I am. So you have to know what your strength what capabilities are. Oh, I bet. So, I'll, I, I mean, as an example, I have a couple buddies that are like 6'5". So their arm strokes and their leg strength, their strokes are bigger. So it takes probably two of my strokes to their one. So I have to compensate for that in some of those spots that they could go farther down into and be able to pull back out of. Mm. Whereas I couldn't physically just can't you know so you got to figure that out hopefully not the hard way yeah (laughs) hopefully not with people in there yeah when you i mean obviously you've been doing like the klamath and the eel for a long time i'm guessing right those rivers Mm -hmm. did you and the trinity and the trinity when you started out would you just go out by yourself to try to get a feel in the layout of okay here's where the water is going to get a little rough here's where i need to pay a little more attention or did you just hit the ground running with it oh no oh no I'm, I'm very cautious because mm. I don't like wrecking my stuff. Yeah, it could get expensive going down so that path. I would go with somebody else. Mm-hmm. Somebody or, who's done it before. Exactly. Ask questions because, you know, there were no videos back then where, oh, let me just YouTube this or yeah. Google this and find out what it looks like. No, that you go and it was you all get on it the yourself. job. Yeah. So ask a lot of questions, go with people. Uh, that's where my wife's cousin came in. Mm-hmm. Our first drift was on the Trinity River down through Willow Creek. Oof. So, and it was, that's an easy drift. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah. Oh, you always hear about the Trinity being a rough river. Right in that section's not, not too not, bad. No. Okay. You just got to, again, you just pay attention. I mean, it's it, comparably to other spots on the Trinity, pretty easy. Mm. All the way down through that Hoopa area, except for between Big Rock and Tish Tang. There's a okay. couple spots called uh, Sugar Bowl Falls and T-Bone. Yeah. T-Bone for a reason. A little rough. Yeah. So other than that, I mean, you just really got to pay attention and know your surroundings and stuff. But ask questions. Don't just go do it, especially if you've never been on it, because you don't know what. And every year is different, depending on the storms we get. So our rivers change. The only one that really doesn't change a lot is the Smith River. And it's because it's got so much big stone in it and no, not very much sediment that not, it doesn't move around a whole lot. Oh, that's interesting. So every other river has some changes every year. Trees fall in, banks cave in, 
move the whole course of the river. So even though you like say I've been doing this for however many years, 25 years, say, I still year to year go, if I'm going to go do a run, I check it out as much as I can beforehand or ask people that live in that particular area, hey, what, what, what went on? You know, did you have any trees fall down or something like that? Now, like a place like the South Fork of the Eel, a lot of stuff falls down. You may even want to bring a chainsaw. Oh, it's that bad. Oh, we've had things like that happen. Oh, man. Yeah. Or it's impassable. So how does that work? You just go up well, next you to it? you got to cut a path through. Oh, man. Either that or carry the boat around. Wow. Yeah. So it just, uh, it changes. Things mm-hmm. change. So you got to be aware of that. Now, you're not normally going to get like, oh, man, all of a sudden I got a waterfall on the end of this run. It's not that drastic. Not like that. But you'll have objects in the water or change of course because you had a slide or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that might happen after every storm. Wow, I never thought about that. So, yeah, you got to pay attention to those things, too. Are you guys, is there a pretty big group of people doing this? I'd imagine it's pretty small. Um, Depending on your area. Like our area, I'd say river guide-wise, there's, I'd say between 20 to 30. Okay. At, at the most, guides. Now, you go down into the Sacramento Valley, there's hundreds Oh, really? Yeah. Picks up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Is that just because the river can support it well, a little have, bit more down there? Well, yeah. And you have more mileage of river. Oh, 200, 300 miles of river. You know? So same thing with like the Klamath. Once you start going up the Klamath, you'll have Wichapec, Happy Camp, Wairika, all that area up there where different guides guide those particular areas. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. What's your favorite river? <laughs> people ask that all the time it's tough because drift boat wise it's uh and depending on if it's winter time or summer or, you know um the eel is really the fish in there are very unique mm-hmm. uh, salmon and steelhead wise how so um strong and just like the salmon are just really fat and they have their own look and they're just uh they they used to be really monsters in there i mean back in the day i had a friend named bill fabry that grew up and mark wakeman too who is also a guide uh long time guys on those systems and uh back in the day it, it before the flood of 64 it wasn't uncommon to catch 20 pound steelhead on a daily basis and, wow. and 50 pound salmon. Wow. Yeah. The, the 64 flood really devastated our area in many ways. And it's taken a long time for things to start coming back. And up until our drought, our salmon were coming back pretty strong because the salmon come in earlier than the steelhead. Mm-hmm. It's really hard on them when they can't get up and into the tributaries and spawn. And because of that drought, a lot of those fish may have spawned in the main river. And what happens when they spawn in the main river is they get you get that get high water after that and it pushes all that sediment. You notice how the eel gets muddy real quick? Yeah. Lots of sediment. It's like number two in the world oh, for Jesus. sediment per mile. Um so it kills the eggs. Whereas up in the tributaries you don't have that big of a uh uh 
cubic feet per second flow change. Mm -hmm. So they have more chance to survive. So when they can't get up into those tributaries, which is where they should be to spawn, then your mortality rate increases. So five years of drought, that's a whole cycle of fish, you know? So it, it really devastated it. It was really coming back well. I mean, we were having a consistent years of, you know, 20 to 30 pound fish and lots of them. So it's going to take a while. Hopefully, if like right now, we're not having rain. And that's this is when those fish need to be upriver. So have you noticed, because I mean, you've been doing it for so long. Have you noticed like an environmental impact of changing? Not so just because of like the floods and the changing seasons, but just any notable change over the decades of man, something's going, because you hear about like algae blooms in the eel and, you know, the water's warming a little bit in certain parts of the river. And then you wonder how does that affect the fish? In my opinion, I've lived here my whole life and this happens in other areas too, but human expansion, there's more people. So there's more people living in the mountains. So they're taking more water out of those creeks, not on purpose, but just to live. So our creeks are dropping during the summer faster. So those smolts, which are the smaller ones, don't have as much chance to grow to the size that they did before, before they head to the ocean. As that creek drops, they have to move downstream. It just forces them. Or they get stuck in little puddles. And then the birds get them and whatever else. So that is a huge issue with uh, not having enough water in those tributaries for the amount of time that they need to grow and get stronger and be able to defend themselves and get, in, you know, hide in places down in the lower part of the uh, river or the estuary or actually in the ocean um, for survival. Mm -hmm. So that's just my opinion. I'm not a, you know, yeah. professional biologist or anything like that, but that's just what I see over time because I grew up, out in Bayside on Jacoby Creek. And I can tell you right now, I just out there yesterday, I've never seen that creek that low, ever. Even, I mean, during the drought probably, but not other than that, I've never seen it that low. And it's, it's a number of things. I mean, when I grew up as a kid, we used to ride our bikes and our motocross bikes and everything at the upper end of that, which is, there is a falls up there. There was like three houses. Drove my wife up there, I think it was last year for the first time ever, which was kind of a crack up, but there was literally 30 mailbox things at the end of that road. So the water's got to be going somewhere, right? Yeah. Because they don't have, they have, most of them run on wells mm -hmm. or they suck water out of the creek. Is there any push to try to regulate that? I mean, are lawmakers aware? I have of no idea. Okay. I don't I don't think so because mm. um, even when I was a kid, they'd, they'd suck water out of the river to water their lawns, but there was a third as many. Yeah. You know, it's just population growth has expanded into those areas and it just, um, it's taken its toll. Yeah. Basically. We used to literally stand on the covered bridge and listen to the salmon go up under there at night. Oh, wow. You could just hear their tails going up through, like hundreds of them. Oh, that's insane. Yeah. And my buddy, 
back in elementary school, his parents lived right pretty close to the creek, upriver, and they'd have 200 pairs of steelhead spawn every year in, in the back part of their yard. And the last time I talked to him, there was two. Jesus. Yeah. So it's just, I don't know how to get in, you know, get a middle ground on that. It's, it's tough because, like I say, population just keeps growing. They got to go somewhere. You know, they can't just live all on top of each other, you know, so it's rough. I mean, there are things being done um, to try and compensate for that, which is cool. And there's different ideas. There's hatchbox programs and, and uh, stream restorations and just educating people on, hey, we need water to have life mm-hmm. for everything. And, and it's starting to work. I mean, things are, it's never going to be the same. Which you know that's just life. Yeah, um, but there are things out there. There's there's uh, definitely programs in place. Um, I'm I don't know about the you know legalities and all that stuff, but there are people out there that are trying to help. Um, we do have a big organization now, um, uh, NorCal Guides and Sportsmen's Association. Uh, pretty big. We've really grown over the last couple years. Um, these guys are based out of Sacramento, but they, they are working, uh, with the entire state of California. They also work with some of the guys in Oregon to try and coordinate their guide associations. And this isn't just guides. This is all sportsmen for hunting and fishing. Uh, we've grown to the point now where we have a paid lobbyist to be at every single meeting that the government, that the fishing game or government or whatever has so that we have a voice yeah and it's starting to work those are the types of programs i'm telling you that are that are starting to help out in different areas Mm -hmm. it's hard to be everywhere at once but they gotta you know start somewhere and it's really working the the unfortunately for a lot of things the covid thing kind of put a damper on stuff yeah i bet so you couldn't have auctions anymore you couldn't have fundraisers so we're starting to do things online like these, the first through the seventh of this month, there's an auction every day for different items to try and raise money to, because uh, you got to pay these, you know, lobbyists and different people to be your representative. Because if you don't have a representative, they just walk all over you. If you're not at every single meeting, they'll just walk all over you. Their their choice will be the choice because they have people there. So we need to continue that and continue helping with the fisheries and the hunting and everything so that we can have this in the future. And it's, it's starting to definitely work. We just had a, uh, one of my buddies over there, uh, working on the whiskey town Lake because one of the culverts, uh, was destroying the spawning grounds for the kokanee and trout and everything else. He finally got it. They're starting work today to take that culvert out and replace it so Mm. that those fish can get up there and spawn. Those are the types of things that, that that organization is getting done that would not normally be done. So though you got to really thank those people that put in all those hours to uh, make sure those things are starting to happen. Yeah. So anyway, that's these hatchbox programs. Is that like these fisheries restoring some of the fish population or what is that? Years ago when, when I first learned about it, my cousin did it on the Columbia river when he lived on the Columbia. So they're little, Back then, there were little green boxes. 
So you'd raise the little fry in those boxes on the river itself, like in your backyard, because he lived right on the Columbia. So for the most part, the fish and game would kind of leave you alone. They'd kind of give you the guidelines and let you know how to do this and how to do that until it got up to the point of release because they don't want disease into the main river. So mm-hmm. they would have to monitor those uh, smolts and stuff. Uh, prob- I don't know if it was like, it was probably at least three weeks before they actually got released where they would come every so often, say every week them. or every three days or whatever, inspect them. Okay. So you was hands-on for the people. They loved it. My cousin said it was great. And the, uh, the survival rate was like way higher than like a regular hatchery because they were in their own environment. So it, it worked out really good. Now, why they don't still do it, you know, there's both sides of everything. So people fight this and they fight that. And because everybody think want, you know, a lot of people want everything back to natural. Well, we have so many people now. It's not sustainable. It's not. Yeah. I mean, sure. I'd love to have it all back wild fish and everything too. But if I can make, a hatchery fish work and lots of fish are out there and the community's making money and people are happy and they're catching fish and the motels are making money and the restaurants are making money because people are traveling and fishing and I don't see anything wrong with that. You know, it's not, in my opinion, again, it's not harming those wild fish and it's been proven. I mean, there's, there's a, there's another place out there called Hatchery Wild. Hatchery and Wild coexist. It's a new. You'll see it on Facebook. You can check it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, those guys are all about that, and they're all about keeping everything, you know, balanced as much as possible. And it seems it's working. It's just you always have. There's always going to be two sides to every story, you know. And it's uh, my bottom line is, if it creates more fish. Where's the problem in that? Yeah. And they're not like all jammed up into a spawning tributary and competing with the natural or native fish. They're in a hatchery, you know, then I don't see the problem with it. But, you know, I don't know all this story on both sides either. So if I was actually hands-on in there, then I could have more of a an opinion on that. Um, but that's just kind of what I see. Do a lot of people push back on hatchery fish? Oh, yeah. Huge pushback. Is that just like what? Uh, it's weird hearing you say that because why would that? Like, I know it's you it, think because a fish is a fish. They're they're so set on just having a wild fish in the system and nothing touched by man. Mm. But in order for that, in my opinion, again, in order for that to be possible, the population has to change of people because we can't be everywhere into these uh, spawning tributaries and stuff, living and walking and whatever, and expect that to happen. You know, a hundred years ago, there was nobody walking in those tributaries, but maybe once a year, you know, there was just not as many people. Yeah. So you didn't have that happening. You didn't have people sucking water out of those creeks at the rate they're doing now. So there's a lot of differences that just aren't, I mean, I just don't see how 
how you'd go back that wild that. fishery is gonna gonna thrive in this day and age are without, there, without some help they're obviously identifying markers then between a hatchery fish and a oh yeah they they clip the little fin like on a on a steelhead they clip the adipose fin on the back the little tiny one oh, okay and they do the same on on uh chinook salmon in some places but like coho because coho looks so much like a steelhead they had to do something different so they do a maxillary clip which is the little piece right on the back of their jaw right here where it may, where you can where their jaw opens and closes okay there's a little piece right here so if they have a fork in the river they'll clip the right side for that fish going that returns to that side of the river or a say like the trinity is a tributary to the Klamath. So when they go up the Trinity, those fish are clipped on the right side because of fish pointing upstream. When they go to the Klamath, they're clipped on the left side. Oh, that's interesting. Same thing on the Rogue. If they're going up the Illinois, they're clipped on the right. If they're going up the main stem of the Rogue, they're clipped on the left. So that's how they distinguish on the coho side of the, for hatchery fish. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's the only identifying marker. Well, if you take them and dissect them and stuff, they say there's different markings. A fish by growth looks just like a tree. So in you know when you cut a tree down, they have the growth marks mm -hmm. inside. The little rings. A fish does the same thing. So they're saying that by you know orth, uh, under a microscope, if you look at a hatchery fish versus a wild fish, they're saying that they can see the the line differences in them, which could be true. I mean, I haven't looked at them that closely. I have seen them, you know, pictures and on videos and stuff like that. And sometimes they do look a little bit different. But taste-wise, yeah, you're never, I don't think you're ever going to tell the difference. So, again, you know, if it makes people happy and and they're getting out there and doing it instead of doing other bad things, Where's the harm in that? Yeah. So. Now, something I didn't know is that um, Native American lands obviously have different regulations for parts of the river that go through, through the reservation. Their land. Yeah, yeah. Does that affect what happens then on you guys and for you guys, vice versa, for them? No, they pr they pretty much are on their own. Like they have their own set of rules mm -hmm. and we have ours. So we can't, like, say our fishing game can't go into them and say, hey, you know, you're doing this wrong or that wrong or whatever, because their jurisdiction, ours. Mm -hmm. So we're totally separate. So, like, when we have quotas on the Klamath, that quota is for us, um, the public, you know, not the tribe. The tribe has their own set of quotas for their fishery, and they have their own counters and and their own uh, regulators and all that stuff. So everything's totally separate. Are you, in your opinion, would you guys say that you're both regulated pretty equally? Or where does the regulation um, line? I'm not really sure on, on their end of it because mm -hmm. I don't, you know, I don't know. But our end of it, yeah. I mean, we have counters down there. And when that quote is met, That's it gets it. shut off. Yeah. 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 And uh, last few years, I've, I've seen it on their end because we've had lower, lower numbers of fish. So they've held themselves back down here, you know, at the, at the estuary part, because that's where I fish. I don't know what they do upstream Further because up, yeah. I don't live up there, but I know downstream they have 
for sure. Because hmm. you can see the activity cease on the river itself. You know, you'll see those guys out there down at the mouth and with their nets and everything. And, and then when that ceases, you know that they've probably said, hey, you know, we don't want to be out there right now or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It seems like you guys would almost have to work together a lot because if one side's overfishing or... We're know. starting to, yeah. yeah. That's another part where that guide association comes in. We're having a lot more communication with the tribe which is really cool because before there was none. So there was always headbutting and, you know, because where there was no communication. Yeah. You know, everybody was like, it was like you and your buddy talking behind each other's back, you know, it's yeah. like, no, we need to talk together and try and get this stuff uh, worked out. Yeah. You know? So it's beneficial to everybody. So yeah, you guys are working on the same Yeah. So thing, it's getting better. Know, essentially. It's getting better. Yeah. And that's sure. coming from that association is, well, mostly because it has more of a voice. Yeah. You know, overall, more people. And when you're at the, all those meetings, because they're at the meetings too, then you're more communication. Mm-hmm. So. And that's pretty recently that that started happening? I'd say within the last three years. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Yep. So there are some good things happening for yeah. sure. Yep. Yeah. I mean, everybody wants, I don't know anybody that doesn't like fishing. And everybody wants it to be around <laughs> for a long time, you know? Oh, yeah. A day yeah. without being able to go on the river and fish would be a sad, sad day yeah. for most people. Yeah. Are you worried at all about what, you know, what the future holds if people don't rise up to the occasion to try to help? Oh, for sure. Sustainability? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, anybody that loves it that much has got to be a little bit worried for sure. Yeah. Yeah, because... Um, the hardest thing to slow down is population growth, you know, because that's just the way it is. Yeah. And so you got to find other ways to improve your fisheries and your hunting and all that stuff while still absorbing the growth in population. So that's a hard one. And yeah. It's, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's scary for sure as far as that. Yeah, finding that balance yeah. would be. Yeah. I mean, it, it, somehow we got to find some sort of balance for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's crazy because you hear about how, you know, obviously what happens out in the ocean is radically different than what happens on these rivers and stuff. But you hear about, you know, the vast amount of fish that they're pulling out of the ocean. And then you hear about the, there's no regulation on that for various reasons. And then you hear people talk about, you know, the effects that that has and then sustainability and it's almost like you know somewhere something's got to give you know because people are going to continue to eat seafood yeah they're going to continue to want seafood and we need to provide that for them you know but you got to find a sustainable see, way to do it that's where the whole hatchery thing comes see, in see they start talking about farming fish mm-hmm. well in my opinion if if you eat a farm fish and you eat an ocean fish and if you can't tell the difference there's something wrong. Mm-hmm. Why would you want to do that when you can create hatchery fish? Is there... So there's a... there's. I've never had a farmed fish. So there, there's definitely a taste oh, difference yeah. between the two. Yeah. When you see those fish in the store that all look pink, mm-hmm. just like a regular fish, that's dye. Oh, yeah. They dye the salmon especially, Their right? fish is white. Huh. Yeah. Because they don't have the nutrients that the ocean provides. All the the krill and the anchovies and the herring and 
sardines and whatever they eat out there, that creates that color in their meat and the taste and the oil. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. yeah. So, so what do you think of that, what is it called, Nordic Farms that's coming into the bay? Have you heard anything about that? Oh, yeah, I've heard about it. What do you think about that? Personally, I don't like it because, I mean, it's going to create jobs for sure. Yeah. But I would rather see the fish in the, in the river mm-hmm. than in a farm. Yeah, um, redistribute those funds to well. You're gonna else. have people. Uh, you're gonna have a better fish, by far. Mm-hmm. No matter what. I mean, nobody's gonna change my mind on that. I mean, it's just the way it is. And you're you're still gonna have jobs with the hatcheries and with the people running the hatcheries. Maybe not as many jobs as you would have if we open one of those farms. The other issues that a lot of people talk about is escapement. What happens if we have a natural disaster and those fish get into our system? You know, the ocean or the bay? We're screwed. It's going to, it'll devastate everything. Disease and all the things come along with it. It'll be, it's a bad thing. It's already, I mean, you can go across the country to the different farms that, that, uh, that they've had and that's happened. Mm-hmm. It's created nothing but problems with the fisheries in that area. Now oh, that's they, interesting. Now, they say that it's not possible for that to happen on the one that's coming here. Well, we all know that anything's possible. Yeah. Right? And a lot of my friends are, are you know, that I and people that I know are, are backing that, which is fine. They have their own ideas. That's, you know, that's cool. But in my opinion, I think we'd be far better off having a hatchery fish do the same thing as what they're trying to do. Now, the difference that I see is all of their fish will be sold, you know, to a grocery store, to somebody selling fish on the side or whatever. It's not like you have to go fishing to catch a hatchery fish. Mm -hmm. That's, that's a huge difference. So I see that. And I see the economy difference between those two. Um, but for me, the, uh, the devastation that it could cause if, if something were to go wrong is far beyond what could ever happen with a hatchery fish. So these farmed fish aren't fish that are naturally local to this environment. They're not sourcing them. They're just coming in with whatever they can grow. I don't think so. Don't okay. quote me on that. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not, I don't know how that works. But even if it was, they become... Once they get in that farm, there's no nutrient. There's nothing yeah. like it would be in the natural environment. Yeah, and they're not growing just five or ten fish. I mean, if they were, if those fish got out at the oh, numbers, tens of thousands. Got, yeah, yeah, that could decimate yeah. an environment pretty quickly. Yeah, and you could make an argument that a hatchery fish is, you know, better if not at least equal because yeah, you might not go out and catch all those fish, but those fish are feeding other animals in mm-hmm. the ecosystem they're fertilizing the sediment they're helping the environment they're doing everything a while yeah, even fish if they're not do. eaten except you know where they were born and raised yeah and to tell you the truth i've watched it many times on a lo- on our local river which is the mad that has a hatchery those fish go up and spawn just like any other fish if there's if the gates closed or if there's too many fish in the hatchery or they got to dump some out they go up and spawn in the tributaries. So when they come back, how are you going to know the difference yeah. when that little fin's not cut off? You don't. They will not physically be able to tell the difference between those two fish. 
Hmm. And I've, I mean, it's, it, you can't change that. I mean, it's, they can't tell you that there is a difference. And they did it naturally, even though they've been spawned in a hatchery, you know, to start their life off. When they came back, maybe they couldn't get in. They went on upriver because that's just what, you know, Mother Nature is telling them to do. They got to spawn. Yeah. So. Are these, ha- like the local hatchery, are these getting state funds to do this? Or are these private sectors? The Mad River one does. It's, okay. Yeah, but like our our hatchery up in Smith River, that's all funded by us. Oh, wow. By by fundraisers and just people giving money to the hatchery. So it costs, I think Mike Koopman told me, because he's very involved up there with the okay. hatchery. I think at the last time I talked to him, I think it was like 30 grand a year just to run the electricity for the hatchery. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. So it's very expensive because you're running 24 hours a day yeah. when things are rolling. So it's pretty expensive to run pumps and and keep the water temperature where it's supposed to be and lights and, you know, all that stuff. And that's a small hatchery. It's not very big. That's insane. I don't know if you've ever been there, but. I've, I think so. That's the one out. It's, you remember where, uh, like you, you're headed towards Brookings? Oh, no, I don't think I've been to that. I've been the one, it's out by Freshwater. Is there a oh, oh, there? oh, that's the other. Yeah, that's in the locally in town. This is on yeah. the Smith River. Okay, yeah, no, I haven't been to that Rowdy, one. Rowdy Creek. Oh, no. Yeah. No, I've been to the local one. Yeah, so if you go, like you go over the Smith River, you're going to go about another three or four miles, and you'll see what's called Rowdy Creek. Look to your left right as soon as you cross the little bridge. They're working on it, the bridge right now. The hatchery's right there. Okay. I mean, you can literally turn at the next turn and drive right in there. I'll have to go check that out. Is that a bigger hatchery than the local one here? Uh, about the same size. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. As the one you're talking about. Yeah. 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 Now, the one that used to do really, really good, and they shut it down, was Redwood Creek. Why'd they shut it down? Because they didn't want to fund it anymore. Because you got people out there that didn't want hatcheries. <laughs> so they got, because remember when I told you when he didn't have a voice? Yeah. Their voice was heard because they were at those meetings. That's insane. Yeah. That's insane. Well, and it really like, does come down to that is you just, oh yeah, it's just you got to like, be there. Yeah. It's just like any law that gets passed. If your voice isn't being heard. It's left out from then the conversation. They don't even know that you care. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Wow. So it was probably, if it wasn't the top one in California, it was dang close. Oh, really? And it's really not that big. You've driven by that one a million times. It's a red building on the side with the boarded up windows. Yeah. Just outside of Oric headed yeah. north. Yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't know that's what that was. Yep. Oh, shit. Yep. So that's because it was probably shut down before you were born. Probably. <laughs> probably. <laughs> yep. We used to go out. They had a little pond they used to stock out there. Out by, you know where there's that school and they have all the elk oh the red the red barn yeah yeah we used to go out there my dad and i sometimes on our way back from big lagoon or freshwater we'd stop in there Mm -hmm. back when they used to stock it and you could just you just hammer fish yeah that that had some big trout in there yeah i don't know what happened because i just asked somebody about that uh that was staying there um this last summer Mm -hmm. and i've asked a couple times before that too but 
I guess it got overgrown and the people didn't take care of it or something and uh, there's no fish in it now. Yeah, they stopped. I knew that they stopped quite a while ago, but I I never found out why. Yeah, I don't I don't know why. It seemed why. pretty popular every time I was there. Oh, there yeah. were always people hammering yeah. fish. Yeah. You'll never believe a place that my dad used to take me. Where? It, you you wouldn't even know there was water there now. Oh, really? So you know where Clam Beach is? Yes. Okay, when you come down off of the hill headed north, down off of the hill, you know, past the airport, mm-hmm. on your on the northbound side, you'll see all this brush and stuff before you get to that first overpass where the uh, scales are. Okay. That used to be all water, and they'd plant that with trout. Really? Yep. My dad used to take me there every year. Wow. Pretty crazy, huh? That's insane. I would have never guessed that. Yeah, it was all, there was no overgrown, I mean, there was trees around it, but it was like a pond that was, I don't know, I don't think it was a half a mile long, but it was fairly long. And they'd stock it with fish. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yep. It makes you wonder why they stopped maintaining things like that, like why they just let it go and then, well, that's it. I don't know. Crazy, huh? Yeah. Oh yeah, people used to. Can I would imagine never people that. lining up on the road right now fishing. I mean, we'd park right there. Jesus. Yeah. I mean, we'd pull over. Different, but... different time. Oh yeah. My Wait. grandfather used to tell me stories of how he used to go out. They'd go out to the beach, and you could just you just fish right off the beach, and you'd be there for 15, 30 minutes, and you'd catch all the fish you'd need, and you'd go home. They'd roast it right there and start eating. Was he fishing perch? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, back in the day. Perch fishing is still pretty good. Do a lot of people still do that? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. I did it for the first time this this year because all the COVID stuff was going on. I couldn't fish. Mm-hmm. You know, it was non-essential. So I went perch fishing. It was good. I went all kinds of places. Wow. Went up there, you know, up by freshwater. I went down by the Eel River. I went um, over by, uh, what is it, Elk River? Yeah. Out there, all over the place. Yeah, they're, they're still around. Pretty good fishing. Yeah, it was good. Oh. Had fun. So are you, you just said that you weren't, not you were non-essential. Yeah, they, that's they the deemed tactic. us non-essential, yeah. yeah. Are you guys able to, are you running tours now? Well, oh, no. yeah. Yeah, oh, we okay. started uh, back um, while I went trout fishing, so June. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And do you only do rivers? I do, because okay. I, I don't do well in the ocean. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the ocean doesn't like me. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Although my buddies are trying to get me to go back out there, they're like, "Oh, maybe by now that you're not getting sick, you know, because uh, you know they want to go fishing." And mm-hmm. it's like, yeah. I don't know if I want to chance that because it doesn't feel good yeah. at all. But I don't know. I might go out there on a flat day and see what happens mm-hmm. in my boat. Yeah. So I can turn around and come back. Yeah. You're I'm like, oh, <laughs> this is overrated. I'm going back. <laughs> Yeah. So do you do any uh any lake fishing locally? Obviously not well, toured, um, but I just started doing trips on Whiskey Town for the Kokanee okay. while, while I'm over there trout fishing. Okay. So when you and your dad came over trout fishing, I didn't have that permit. Now I have that permit I can run on Whiskey Town because it gives an option oh, wow. for the people to uh you know, if they want to go trout fishing or in the river or if they want to go kokanee fishing in the lake. Oh whoa. And then I think in January because I didn't want to pay for a whole year and not even be there until June. Uh, I'm going to 
try and submit for a permit to fish Shasta Lake for rainbows and the kings. Oh, nice. So it gives me three options all within about 20 minutes of where I stay to do whatever. Yeah, and then you can hit that other market of people that yeah want to go fish in the lake yeah and the people that fish for a lot a lot of people come all the way over there and they'll fish two days Mm. so now they have oh now you could do that second day yeah Yeah. oh that's cool i didn't know you could do that in the lakes oh yeah Uh, yep yep it's just you got to get a permit different permits yeah 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 those i bet i yeah i bet it's crazy the number of permits you have to get for that well it's just they're either forest service permits or blm what and is BLM? Bureau of Land Management. Oh, okay. So it's just paperwork and money. Yeah, everything. There's a permit for everything now. Yeah. Yeah. They just, you know, they don't want to know who's out there and they want to know, make sure they're not liable for something that happens. And it's just a paper trail of Keep stuff a record of what's going on. To keep them, on. you know, yeah. 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 Wow. A lot of stuff goes on when you're guiding. Yeah, I bet. I bet. There's a lot of behind-the-scenes work that oh, yeah. you don't see when you're just out there enjoying nope. having fun fishing. Yeah. Does it feel like a job then when you go out just you and you're fishing, or do you still find that same enjoyment? No. Yeah, that's The what I big difference for me was is because I worked in a different industry for 18 years. Mm-hmm. That, you think that helped? Kind yeah. of made you appreciate it a little more? Oh, yeah. Big time. Yeah, I get up every morning like, I, you know, it's no big deal, you know, until you get really tired. But like when I worked in the mill, it just, I just, I, it was different. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, ah, oh, I don't want to go to work today, but I have to go to work today. Now it's like, well, let's go fishing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's Can't just be different. That bad. Uh, so I have a different perspective on that. And, and, you know, I don't know what the guys have that have done it their whole career. I would assume a little bit different just because they haven't done anything different, but I don't know. I, I don't really, haven't really asked them, the guys that have, yeah, um, how they feel about it, but they do tend to refer to it as going to work. And you don't? I don't. Okay. I said, I'm going fishing. Yeah. I always have. I just, that's just. What it is. Yeah. It's what it feels like to me. It's interesting hearing you talking about that because you could I could tell how passionate you are about fishing. And it's weird hearing that attributed also to your job. Because mm-hmm. most people don't have that of, oh man, I get to go to work today. Yeah. Like you said, it's like, oh, the alarm clock's going off. I gotta I gotta get up. I just gotta get through the day. And then tomorrow I gotta get through the day, and then it's the weekend, and you cannot think about it for a few days, and then it's just that cycle of I yeah. just gotta get, I just gotta get to where I can clock out. See, my wife wonders how I get up so early, 70 days in a row. Well, part of it is because I like what I'm doing. And the other part is you do for like the first week to 10 days, your body has to adjust to it and then your, and your mind. And then it's just like you're on a cruise control. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, up, going to work or going to fish. And, uh, Okay, we're getting done. And by the time I'm done, because it's not just fishing for seven, eight hours, it's you got to get everything ready for the next day. So it's literally, I'd say 10 to 11 hours a day. So if I sit down in the chair and the TV goes on, I might be out in five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. 
So it, you do get tired. I mean, I learned to just go to bed a little bit earlier once I start to feel that I'm getting exhausted. Mm-hmm. You know, are you you're making your own bait and stuff too, aren't you? Yeah, I cure for my the own most part? stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. What's the process for that? Is that? It really depends on uh, like my steelhead bait is pretty basic. Usually sugar and borax and then whatever scents you want to put in it. Mm-hmm. Um, the salmon bait is a lot more elaborate. I mean, it goes, we use a red dye, either Potsky's, um, Pro Cure guys use, uh, Pro Glow, Nate's baits. There's all kinds of them out there. And then all the additives along with that, you know, mm-hmm. the, the cures and stuff. So it's a longer process, whereas the natural bait, usually it's 24 hours and I'll pull it out of it. And I'll either leave all that stuff on, like the sugar and the borax and whatever, or I'll shake some of it off and then package it up and vacuum seal it. Um, but with the red stuff, I leave it in there for five days. Oh, wow five to seven days, letting it juice up and then it'll soak, it'll absorb into itself and then it'll reabsorb into itself. That just ensures me that that all those scents are really in that bait. And then I'll take it out, dry it out a little bit because I don't want it real mushy. Mm-hmm. And then I'll, what I do now is I just jar them up and then I vacuum seal them and I put it in the fridge. It's good to go. And I don't use that stuff until the next season. Oh, wow. Because it, it for me, it, it makes it a little bit more, it's stronger. It's it's um, more rubbery type. So it doesn't just fall off the hook. Oh, okay. So it gives more texture to it for me doing it that way than using it right away. So I kind of rotate it like firewood. And it and, uh, seems to work good for me. So. Yeah, I can vouch for that. Last time I was out <laughs> with you, we were slamming fish. Yeah. Yeah. I'd imagine everyone has probably has their own little secret recipe. That oh, yeah. All, yeah. And, and some people are a lot more secretive about it than others. Mm. And I tell you, in this day and age, there's no, I mean, there's no special, like this guy got 100 and this guy got one Yeah. type of thing. There's just so much out there that, Sometimes it's overkill. I mean, it really is, but it all works. You know, basically, if your bait is fresh and not, you know, moldy or stinky or something like that, you're gonna probably you're gonna catch fish. Yeah, it's your presentation that's gonna keep you from catching fish mm-hmm. at that point. You know, so it's uh, and you know a lot of it with bait is how long your stuff um, stays on the hook. And leaves that scent behind as it's drifting. So if you get a bait that falls right off the hook, it's no good. Ten feet after you threw it in the water or in midair as it's going out in the which water, which does happen. I can vouch for that also. You're, you're probably not going to catch fish. Yeah. So um, those two things are pretty essential. Now the rest of the additives and stuff like that. I mean, unless you put something crazy in your bait, you know, you, most you're probably going to catch fish. But keeping it on the hook. And keeping those, you know, whatever scents you have in there as long as they can, which comes with just experience and curing your row, that's going to up your chances. So presentation and those two things, you know, keeping it on the hook and keeping the scent on your bait 
Are you getting a lot of first timers that go on these guides? Um, sometimes, yeah. I have a lot of people that I've fished for a long time, mm-hmm. which is awesome. The the relationships you build are are lifelong. Really cool. Yeah. I'd imagine you're probably losing a little bit of bait with them, right? Because then you got to teach them. Okay, this is how you're going to cast. Yeah. You're gonna aim right here. Yeah. Well, the the thing is nowadays too is I'm using less and less bait. Oh, really? And more and more what we call, uh, they're soft beads. So they're like a rubberized egg. Uh, and what we call yarnies, which are what the back in the day were glow bugs. But these are oversized. They're like the size of a nickel. And in some cases, the size of a quarter, depending on the color of the water. So you just put scent right on those yarnies. Cast them out. And cast them out. And the same thing you can do with the with the soft beads and it's an artificial thing and you just keep casting the best, the really the best thing in my opinion about them is even if you set the hook on a fish and don't get the fish, the bait's still there. Oh, wow. Whereas with eggs, they're gone. They're usually gone or you don't know if they're gone. And another thing I've had happen, uh, on several occasions, somebody hooks a fish, they fight it, fight it, fight it. Boom. It comes off right at the boat cast it right back out we don't have to bait it up i've had them throw it right back out drift 10 feet and hook another fish wow you can't do that with bait wow it takes you too much time to rebait it and get it back out there so it allows you to be fishing more okay yeah which is 90 percent of the game the longer you have your hook in the water yep better your chances are going to be yep and on some days it works better and some days it doesn't. So you got to have both with you. Yeah. That's the key. That's got to be a hard part of the job because you could do everything right. You could take a person right where the fish usually are. Some days you just get skunked. Some days the that's fish fishing. Is, yeah. They just don't bite, which does add to the fun because then you go back out yeah. the next day. And but you never know if that next cast is going to be the trophy. Yeah. Keeps yeah. you hooked. Oh, yeah. Keeps you hooked. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's one of my, I mean, even if I go out and I don't catch anything, it's really hard to have a bad day on the water. Mm-hmm. I mean, just getting outside, especially if you're with friends and you guys are just having fun fishing, regardless of if you catch anything. I mean, you yeah. had a great day on the water. That's what I've always tried to teach my kids too. Um, and it's hard for me because when they come with me, because for, you know, for a long time, it was really hard for me to get them on the boat because I was always booked. Now I've gotten to the point in my I guess, career, you call it, that I'm like, you know what? Life's too short. I got to make a day in each season for these kids. So I've done that. Oh, that's cool. And so, but I want to catch them fish. So when we're not doing good and I'm freaking out, they're like, yeah, this is just cool. We, It's all right. We're, you're, you know, everything's good. And so then I got to think back, well, I did teach them that. So um, because it's, again, you know, you're going to have those days where it's spectacular And you're going to have those days when it's not and the fish just aren't there or they're just not biting. Now, the one that's really, uh, you can, um, think about this is rainbow trout that actually live in the river. They can go on and off the bite like a light switch. And you're like, you know, they're there, but they just don't, they're just done because that's where they feed. That's where they live. Mm-hmm. Whereas a migratory fish, like a salmon and steelhead, they're not really feeding. They're on a mission to spawn. So they're reacting 
out of either anger or uh, a reactionary bite from being in the ocean and feeding. Now, steelhead feed a little bit just because they don't die after they spawn, whereas all salmon die after they spawn. The only one that doesn't is Atlantic salmon. Why? I don't know. That's just Mother Nature, I guess. But um, so salmon are just react, they're just crushing those eggs for competition in their spawning area. Everybody thinks they're feeding, but mm. they're, they're really not feeding. Now, steelhead, a little bit, because they still got to have enough energy to get back out in the ocean because they don't die. So they do feed a little bit, but you got to realize that all those fish, every day they're in the river, the, like the males have the sperm sacs. Those are getting bigger and bigger in their stomach, so they have no stomach. And the eggs are getting bigger in the females, so they have no stomach. So they have really nowhere huh. to put food. Now, after that steelhead spawns and he comes back down, they're a feeding machine. Oh, man. Because they're like, oh, the nutrients are got out of my body. I need to f eat. Yeah. So they're like chomping, you know. So it's, uh, it's a pretty cool process, actually. Oh, I bet. It's all part of the game. Yep. It's so. all Mother Nature working her magic and us just trying to catch fish. Mm-hmm. Pretty amazing, huh? Yeah, it is. Yeah, I definitely, you know, I... I've said it and I'll say it again. You definitely have an awesome job or lifestyle, however you want to put it. But I think it's, <laughs> I think it's something a lot of people definitely admire and would like in their own life. For yep. Sure. Yep. Man, I, I mean, I truly got to thank my wife because if it wasn't for her, I probably would have never done that. I, I mean, it's really hard to leave something that you've done for that long. You had your vacation, you had your retirement plan you had benefits years and everything. benefits and everything you know and it's like man. but i'm thankful she pushed me to do it you know because i really enjoy what i do and it worked out yeah. yeah all right well thanks so much for coming on man I had, a, I had a great time talking with you thanks for having me do you have a facebook page or a website where you want to plug your information so uh, people can find you? yeah it's under alan's guide service a-l-a-n um and facebook page and I have my, most of my stuff goes on my personal page because it's just way easier and uh, faster um, to get it on there than it is the guide page. But I also have one of those on Instagram as well. Uh, just under, I think it's Alan Borges Fish On or something like that on Instagram. I, it's been so long, I can't remember what I put on there. But anyway, yeah, I'm on those. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you, man. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.